Great to have you here in church with us. Let me just say today is a very significant day. Uh, 100 years ago on this day was Armistice Day when peace was declared at the war to end all wars, they thought, World War I. And on that day 100 years ago, uh, church bells rang out across the land to announce that peace. This is the 100th anniversary today of Armistice Day or Remembrance Day as it's now known. And we're going to stop at 10.59 and in coordination with the council service, our church bells are going to ring across Manly for about half a minute. And after that, we'll observe a minute's silence to remember this significant day. I'm sure all of us have been affected in terms of our families by war. One of my great uncles died in World War I. Uh, my grandfather served and was in the Light Horse Brigade in both Gallipoli and in the Middle East. I'm going to pray, uh, but it's also worth saying today is also a day where we're saying goodbye to Cressa. And uh, Cressa, it's been so wonderful to have you here as part of our church. And I would encourage you to take time after the service to say goodbye to Cressa. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you we can be here. And Lord, I pray for your wisdom and guidance as we look at your word today and as we think about what it has to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me, I just forgot my clicker. Well, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a very important question regarding what does it mean to be part of a church? And if I can have the screen on, there we go. Um, last few weeks, we've look, been looking at the question, who are we as God's people under the theme of we are better together? And what we've seen is that basically when you come to Christ, you don't just come to him, you join his body. We're part of a church. And we are better together. Uh, but secondly, when you come to Christ and are saved by him, you join a movement, a mission. Because the message about Christ, the gospel, is one that's going to all the world. And so as a part of the church, we're a part of that mission. And we are better together in terms of enacting that mission, carrying out that mission. And we need to be, as a church, a living testimony to God's grace. But thirdly, in last week, we saw that God wants his church to grow to maturity and the gospel unites us it brings us together in Christ but to grow to maturity actually we need every single person to play their part because we cannot mature without everyone playing their part and everyone has a role to do which is why we had the sign up and serve last week you've got the forms there if you missed out we'd love to include you if I can say in the army of volunteers who make St Matt's happen today I want to look at the question of how do we grow uh, as God's holy people? And the growth that God wants uh, is not just, if I can say, numerically. Uh, it's not just in terms of, if I can say, maturity. It is in the sense of us reflecting him and being different to this world that we live in. That's what holiness is. And when we started the series, we saw there were three descriptions for the church. We are the holy people of God. We are the body of Christ. We are the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to look at that first description. We are the holy people of God this morning. There's no doubt in my mind that the concept of holiness, uh, let alone the desire to be holy, is something that today's church has let slip away. Uh, there's been numbers of forces and pressures upon us. Uh, the rise of secularism in the country, uh, the declining influence, uh, I think, makes for a culture where being distinctive and being holy gets harder and harder. Uh, 
and simply to have a passion for it is hard. What is striking as you look through the letter to the Ephesians, and if you've got your Bibles there, I'd love you to open up. Um, what page is it? I think it's 1175, is that right? 1175, I'd love you to open up. When you read through Ephesians, um, you'll see these descriptions about the way God describes the church, and nine times throughout the letter, he calls us either the holy people of God or calls us to holiness. Now, I'm going to put two on the screen out of the nine. Uh, it's from the very beginning, from the get-go. Uh, Paul says, when I write to you, to God's holy people in Ephesus. That's who he saw the church as, the holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, three verses later, he begins this incredible description of thanksgiving to God, and he says, um, he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing in Christ, why he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy. That's why we've been saved. And you see, holiness means to be set apart. It means to be different. We're set apart for God's purposes. We are set apart to be like God. Not set apart from the world, but to be in the world different. Set apart for God's purposes. And in the passage today, it is a great encouragement to grow together in being different, in being holy. And so have a look at chapter 4, verse 17, the beginning of the reading that Susan brought to us. Paul says, so I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. In other words, there's a strength to what Paul is saying. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And if I can translate that today for us, what he's saying is, when you come to Christ, you must no longer live reflecting the values of the culture around you. There is to be a difference about you. And so there's an old way of life, he says, that you've got to get rid of, and he insists on it. When you become a Christian, you don't just join Christ, you join a body of believers, as I said a couple of weeks ago, but you also enter into a whole new way of life that is defined by Christ and his kingdom. And so when you get to verse 20, uh, the key verse is up there on the screen, verse 24, let me read to you, it says, that however is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ, when you heard the gospel, and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, in other words, get rid of the values that characterized your culture around you, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So the, the journey of the Christian in maturity and holiness is that we put off an old way of life, we put on a new way of life. Now, what struck me as I read through this section is three times there's a trilogy of, if I can say, specific issues that were pertinent to the culture of the day in Ephesus that Paul says you must at all costs avoid and get rid of. And let me say, they're no different to the issues we encounter in our culture here in Sydney and in Manly. They are sexual impurity, sexual immorality, impurity and greed. And three times, he says, with the most incredible strength, he says, get rid of them. Now, there's no doubt when you've come to church 
here at St Matthew's, you would have heard us speak on sexual purity and sexual immorality. Uh, there's no doubt impurity is issues that we have dealt with. I don't think we've talked about greed. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 3. Let's move ahead. These three big issues pop up three times. Chapter 5, verse 3. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. In other words, uh, these three cultural issues of the day, he says you can't even have a, a, a whiff of it. Now, if that isn't strong enough, have a look at the next verse in verse 5. For of this you can be sure, Paul says, no immoral, no impure, no greedy person, such a person is actually an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And if I can put it this way, greed is 100% incompatible with being a Christian and being a member of God's holy people. And I want to speak specifically on this issue today. And I want you to just look at what verse 6 says, because there's a great need to hear what God says on this issue of greed. Verse 6, he says, look, let no one deceive you with empty words. In other words, don't let anyone tell you it's okay. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. In other words, one of the reasons why people will be in hell is because of the way they love money and they trust in it and they worship it. He says it's an idolatry. We give ourselves to it. And I want to address that topic this morning. Aren't you so glad you're in church today? Now let me just say, this message is for me as much as it is for everyone. And I want to give you a number of reasons why. We live in a culture that is extremely materialistic. The good life here in Australia, in Sydney, and particularly here in Manly, is the material life. It's the life where you get as much as you can for yourself. And in this culture, which I described in the first week as being individually expressive, or expressive individualism, um, what that means is, um, well, don't tell me what to do. And particularly don't tell me what to do with my money. I mean, that's one of the things you never talk to people about. How much money do you earn and what do you do with it? And that's our culture. And in this culture, greed thrives. You see, greed is the air we breathe here in Sydney, in Manly, in Australia. And we keep being told that we need more of everything. Now, I'm going to give you one example, and it's only from the last week's newspaper. I've got two examples. This is how often stuff comes up in the news cycle. Uh, this is by Ross Gittens, who is a respected Sydney Morning Herald economics journalist. And he wrote about how we're being conned, conned by superannuation companies about how much money that we need for retirement. And these companies are typically communicating that Australians need to save more super for retirement. They keep saying you need more money for retirement, keep putting more away. Now, they don't tell you that they make more money off every dollar that goes into their funds. Um, and apparently, it's so that you can have a retirement lifestyle, but the interesting thing is that the top 20% of Australians enjoy. And so the advice that's given is given for everyone so that you can be at the top when you retire. And I've heard this myself. 
Um, you know, you need to have enough money so you can go on an overseas trip every year, don't we? Well, actually, do we? It's a good question to ask. The article was based on a report from the Grattan Institute called Money in Retirement, More Than Enough. You can look it up and read it. It basically found that contrary to everything we've been told, the vast majority of retirees today and in the future are likely to be comfortable financially. But that's not where we're encouraged to do. We need more. The second reason I want to speak on greed is this. It's rarely spoken about or mentioned, even amongst Christians. When did you last hear a sermon on greed? I suspect not many of us if at all, have heard one. I think maybe I've heard one. Maybe. Here's another interesting pastoral reflection about why we need this. In my role as a minister, I've had many people come and confess their sins to me. I'm not a priest, but we actually, it's very helpful to confess our sins to each other and people have come and done that on occasions. I've had people come and confess all sorts of sins. I've had people come and confess violence. I've had married people confess adultery. I've had people confess domestic abuse. I've had people confess an addiction to gambling. I've had people confess an addiction to pornography, to sexual immorality. The list goes on. Do you know what? I've never had anyone ever confess greed. We as a church are in a typically liberal voting electorate. It's very interesting for me, in my last church, everyone voted Labor. Everyone here typically votes, and that's okay. Look, I'm not making a judgment on that. But here's one of the things I would observe regarding Manly in what typically votes liberal or independent, not Labor. As Christians, we tend to shy away from critiquing the materialistic culture that always wants more. And is it because maybe we do too? We tend to shy away from critiquing governments that want to win elections by offering tax cuts that often tend to advantage the rich. Is it because maybe that will help me too? We tend to shy away from critiquing the huge bonuses that executives get compared to the lower workers. Is it because maybe I might get one too? You see, what's the issue in our culture? Greed. We keep being told we need more, and money will solve all your problems. And let me say, we love Paul for his wonderful teaching on salvation. Uh, Ephesians 1.3 is one of my favourites. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. That's what we have in Christ. It's incredible. I love that verse. Uh, many people will have Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 as a favourite. We're saved by grace, through faith, not by works. An incredible verse of comfort and assurance that it's by God's grace we're saved. But being blessed by Christ, being saved by Christ, means being called to a new way of life. And it's a whole new way of thinking. And you see, if I can quote an older teacher, the demon of greed is in very deep in our culture, in a way we don't even recognise. And what Paul is saying is, when you come to Christ, there's a whole new way of life that you've got to enter into and part of that is actually shunning greed. It's totally incompatible. It's why the wrath of God is coming. And if you think Paul is a bit tough here, um, 
Well, let's have a listen to what Jesus has to say. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one master or love the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. What's he talking about? He says you cannot serve both God and money. In other words, you've got to work out when you come to follow Jesus, which one you'll follow. Money, God. There's only one choice you can make. So what is greed? I define it this way. It's the inordinate desire for money and possessions. There's nothing wrong with having money and possessions, but it's the inordinate desire to have more money and possessions. It's worth saying it's the opposite of contentment. In other words, contentment says, I'm happy with what I've got. I've got enough. Greed says, I need more. But greed is also the refusal to share your money and possessions. In other words, you see your money as your own. It's mine to do what I want with it. Don't tell me what to do, preacher. I'll use it how I see fit. And I'll use it for myself. Thank you very much. And you see, in the end, greed, according to Paul, is an idolatry driven by this inordinate love for money that should only be given to God. It's a worshipping of money for what we believe it does for us. We, I think, deep down think it's actually going to make us happy if we get more money, and it will make me more secure. The only thing that will make you more happy and more secure is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Money will not save you from illness, relational breakdown, a whole range of things. And let me just say, greed, slowly, systematically, will destroy you. If you want a happy life, learn contentment with what you've been given in Christ and the blessings we have. I'll give you another pastoral reflection. It's interesting to observe what happens when people come to Christ and become Christians. And I've seen this happen many times. And one of the things I observe is how is God working in their life to, to bring change? Which parts change quickly, which parts change slowly? In other words, what are the obvious sins that we go, yes, I need to get rid of that? As against what is not obvious, what is in very deep that we just don't even realise. And my observation is swearing often stops pretty quickly, being argumentative, difficult, pornography, sleeping around, lying, cheating... Uh, and the list goes on. You could say the issues of, issues of sexual immorality and impurity are ones that are more obvious, more on the surface where you go, yes, I know I'm doing the wrong thing and I should get rid of that. But the issue of greed is very different. I've never heard the following said from a new Christian. Bruce, I've just become a Christian and I've got lots of money. Bruce, how can I best use that money, that blessing, for God's purposes. I've worked out that I only need half of what I earn to live a comfortable life, and I can actually give half of what I earn away. What should I do, Bruce? But please, just give me six months before first I go and give money back to people I ripped off. Now, if you think that's a bit over the top, as an illustration... I'd encourage you to read Luke 19. It's a story about a man who did just that. He didn't tell Bruce, he told Jesus. His name is Zacchaeus. Let me share my own experience of what coming to Christ meant. When I was 20, I came to Christ. Many of you will know, on the very first day I was converted, I wanted to share the gospel. 
and I got up in my group at church and said, what are we doing? I went home and for the first time, without being asked, did the washing up and drying up for my mother. At that point, she knew something miraculous had happened. (laughs) The next week, I threw out the porn magazines I had. I'm embarrassed to tell you, my kids know because my mother told them. There's certain revenges my mother has had on me that she was very well entitled to give. It was at a family lunch. My daughters were aghast. It wasn't, though, until 15 years later, a theology degree under my belt, ordination as an Anglican minister achieved, that I heard a message about money and I started to take God's teaching on, on finances and greed seriously. 15 years later. And I was forced to be stopped in my tracks and reorganise what I did. I don't want to say I'm the most generous person. I'm not. But it took me 15 years to acknowledge the issue. I mention this because there's no doubt in my mind I'm not alone in it. Let me ask a question I think all of us need to grapple with. How do I know if I'm greedy? How do I know if I'm greedy? I'm going to give you some principles from the Bible to think through. Who gets first cut of the money? You see, is the money something you view as a blessing from God that you're a steward of? And you follow this principle. It's in Proverbs 3.9. It's all through the scriptures. And Proverbs 3.9 says this, Honour the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your crop. In other words, the first thing when you work out how much money you earn is, you give that to God. The first part, not the last part. And that's what Kathy and myself do. Every year we sit down. It's one of the reasons I... We'll keep running Commitment Day every year because it gives an opportunity for all of us to stop and reflect, what are we doing with our finances? I want to help you not be greedy. I want to help myself not be greedy and to begin being generous. And we give to God first because we say we don't love money. Actually, I love you, God. I don't trust in money. I trust in you, God. I believe all I have is because of you, God, all the promotions, all the blessings, all the bonuses, all the gifts. Actually, when you actually stand back, they're all from you. I know I may have worked hard, but you're the one who has blessed me. And so because you've blessed me, I'm going to give you the first portion back to you. And every time of the year, we sit down and make adjustments. And one of the things I want to encourage people to do is if you've never given before, is to start with 10%. Now, inside your bulletin, there's also the Treasurer's Report. I'd encourage you to have a read when you take it home. Uh, For the first time in September, we actually made budget. That was the great news. The bad news is Martin told me October, we slid back. Anyway, I'm going to be praising God for September. But at the back of that, there's a little section on St. Matthew's giving philosophy. It's basically my giving philosophy. I'd encourage you to read it. And why you should start at 10%, it's called tithing. And that's the standard for the Old Testament. The great news is in the New Testament, you can give more. You can be generous, and for the life of me, being generous cannot be less than 10% when that's where you start from in the Old Testament, given all the blessings that we have in Christ that the people of God in the Old Testament never had. Secondly, so if we give first cut of money to God and we start with 10%, uh, second thing is, how much money do you give away? 
as you work out what to give away, do you tithe or do you tip? You see, the greedy person tips God, he doesn't tithe. It's one of the reasons I want to encourage young people to begin tithing from the earliest of ages because it's very hard to start when you're 50 and you're at the peak of your financial earning capacity because you will just take a very deep gasp and go, do you really mean that amount of money? Actually, I do. Well, actually, it's not me, it's actually God. It's his wisdom. But you see, if you've grown up with it, you never miss it. And this thing I love about electronic giving, I don't miss it because I never see it. And I learn to live on what I don't have, what, what is left. And my encouragement is this, if you've never tithed, to start now. Now, here's what not to do. Don't take this home, and you should have all these mailed out. If you haven't got one, they're up the back. Don't take it home and think about it till next week. I'd actually encourage you to go home today and work out how you can contribute. Thirdly, let me sharpen the second question. Do you spend more on yourself or on others and God? I learned this principle from Paul White. It's a very challenging principle. He was the great jungle doctor, a missionary and a great evangelist to kids. And he used to have this principle for himself. He said basically after his bills were paid, when he would spend money on himself, he would always spend the exact amount and give it away. Because he wanted to be generous. So if he bought a $2,000 lounge that uh, he'd go and spend and give $2,000 away. There's an article in yesterday's paper based on a report by Credit Suisse. It showed that Australians are the second richest nation in the world when you compare the average amount of wealth per adult. We also are at the very bottom in terms of when it comes to giving to world aid, which is endemic of the greed in the country. And in Manly, we're at the upper ends of that wealth spectrum. So what that shows is we are the wealthiest of the wealthy. And what that means is for some of us, we can actually give far more than 10% because relative to the world and the country, we're extremely well off and tithing is really just scratching the surface of what we can comfortably give. And so after your bills and your needs are paid and met, do you spend more on yourself or on the gospel and others in need? Or are you storing up riches in this world for yourself? Let me just say, I personally don't think overseas trips every year is a need. I wouldn't put that on the column of necessary spending. Now, some may have to go back for international travel to see family, I get that. What I'm trying to provoke you to think about is, actually, what do you do with your money? We are incredibly wealthy here. There's a passage in the middle of this section we looked at that speaks about work and the reason for work, it says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. In other words, one of the reasons Paul says you work, and there's a number of reasons to work, but one reason is so you can earn money to help those in need, not store it up. And so I want to challenge you, if you don't want to be greedy, what you need to be is generous. It's, it's one or the other. You either view your money as yours that you keep and use for yourself or a blessing from God that you use and give as he looks after you. 
And you've really got to work out which one you're going to be. Greedy, generous. And my encouragement is to be generous, and this is the way I try and give. Uh, I give first to the local church here at Manly. We tithe here. Uh, that's been my principle for many years. It's where I'm spiritually fed and nurtured. And so 1 Corinthians 9 talks about that as a very important principle. Give where you are spiritually fed and nurtured. We give here first. And that's why we have the cards. I encourage people to give to the ministry here. We give to support missionaries. And I absolutely want to give some, uh, quite a few thousand dollars every year to support missionaries that we partner with. But I also want to give money outside of that. Not just here, but elsewhere. And I also want to encourage us to be thinking beyond us the missionary, the needs, the causes that you can support and help. My goal here is at St Matthews, we'll be one of the most generous churches in Sydney. And here's the thing I want you to think about as we think about Better Together. How amazing would it be if we took hold of the teaching of Scripture and turned our back on greed and storing up for ourselves and thought about all the blessings we have and actually raise the question, how can we be more generous? What other churches might get planted? What other missionaries might we support? What other causes might be invested in? Friends, a church that takes this seriously and is generous in the things of God and in helping people is a holy church set apart for God. And friends, that's my prayer that that's what we'll be. Generous not greedy. Friends, my alarm has just gone off, which says we are very close to the bells being rung. I'm going to invite you just to be quiet now and reflect on what God's word might have said to you. And very shortly, the bells will ring in remembrance of those who gave their lives to bring peace to this world 100 years ago. Let us be quiet.